Hello again, folks. Matt Gurney here from The Line. This is our second episode of the still experimental The Line podcast. The first one went well. I think this one has gone better. It did have a good reaction, so we're going to keep trying this. Enjoy the second episode. It's a long weekend, and I hope uh, for all of those who are celebrating, it's a, a continued wonderful Ramadan, a wonderful Passover, a very happy Easter, and of course, from us, a very happy and we hope popular second episode of the Experimental The Line podcast. And I should warn you, Jen and I talk too much. Sorry, folks. This one, it's almost an hour long. Uh, well, good morning. Um, this is a revised introduction to our video. Jen, we've never actually done this before, but for both the video and the podcast, we have uh, changed it. And the reason we've changed it is actually really boring and mundane. It's workflow. So you and I do the video, which then gets turned into the podcast before we write the dispatch. And this week, after we had done the video and after we had turned it into the podcast, what you realized- Before we had actually written the dispatch. Before, but before we'd written the dispatch, you were doing your dispatch work on that. And your as you were investigating stuff, we realized that we need we well, what's the best way to describe this? Basically, we just learned more about what we were going to write about. Yes, yeah, so, I mean the problem, the problem and the challenge and the what we've discovered, um, the issue with the the workflow that we had uh, tried out this this week in our experimental sort of podcast situation was that you know on the Thursday when we record the video or Friday morning when we record the video we have a general sense of what we're going to talk about, but yeah. it's it's a video about what we're going to write about. Hey, Matt, what are we going to write about this week? Oh, this, this, this. So, I mean, we have a, a general background research, but we haven't done our full research at that point. Um, so, you know, then Friday comes along, we then will sometimes put in calls. We'll do a little bit more research. We'll get more precise in terms of what we're trying to say for the written stuff. And then the written stuff will go out and then at the same time, we'll blast the, the, the audio visual as well. Normally that's not a problem because if there's something we need to get rid of from the audio visual or change or edit from the audio visual, we have time to do that um, in that process. But we were, you know, we're trying with this experimental podcast system. So we, we, we tried something new and that was we blasted the podcast before we were done the written stuff. And we learned that that was a mistake. <laughs> Like, we shouldn't have done that. Um, we, we, we should have waited until we were totally comfortable with what we were going to say in the final dispatch before we blasted the podcast. So, oops, um, we made an it. We, we, that, that was wrong. That, that, that was the incorrect workflow. Um, we're still sorting ourselves out. We're still trying to figure out how to make um, the audio video side of this work without you know, totally destroying our workloads. Um, so sorry. This is an edited version of the uh, uh, video slash podcast. Um, we have just redacted a section here um, that we are going to talk about in this week in the written section of our of our dispatch, and we're going to talk about it next week in the audio video video segment of of next week's podcast and, and and video when we are a little bit more precise in our terminology and we're not we're not off the cuff and we're not quite so off the cuff about it. So um, apologies for that. If you uh, uh, were looking forward to the dispatch and then suddenly realized that it, sorry, if you were looking forward to our, our uh, podcast and then suddenly realized that it had disappeared on you, that's why um, all will be made clear in the next week or so. And uh, that's about it. And now on with the program. Well, hello, uh, this is another line 
editor's video. And I guess saying this almost self-consciously, Jen, we expect now that this will be our second still experimental uh, podcast. Ooh, my video feed's cutting out and vanishing. Um, it, it was fun what we did last week. What I'm still trying to figure out for the podcast is how to just make it more seamless. It took me about an hour to turn our video into a podcast. But I have the feeling once I get better at this, I could maybe do it in five minutes. Like I was yeah, like, I'm not, I'm not trying to like, like add additional burden. Yeah, I'm, I'm not trying to add additional burden to you. It's just that we're already doing these. Okay, so for people who don't know or have just had it crouching in, we now do our, our weekly dispatch meeting. We do it as a Zoom video call. And then we're like, mm-hmm. well, if we're doing this dispatch which meeting, we put on YouTube, call, yeah. Which we, yeah. Why don't we just put that on YouTube and make this like extra content? I mean, it's no extra work for us or not really. So then we were like, well, if we're going to do this, why don't we just take the audio from our, our meeting and we'll turn it into a podcast because, you know, you and I can gab on for hours. So we tried doing that for the first time last week. It seems to be really popular. Like people, um, like this actually is what our, a lot of our readers were asking for. They were asking for yeah. a Gerson Gurney podcast. Um, and we, we're, we're being really cheap and lazy about it because we're literally just taking the audio from the video feed and then slapping it onto a podcast so that people can listen to it. So um, and we had like, like 1,500 downloads, which was pr- pretty good for something we uh, had no in- real intention or plan to launch or ability to do anything good with. So seems to be really popular. I do think that it's probably worth us investing, getting me a proper microphone and, and improving the audio quality a little bit. I'll, yeah, I'll, I will. I will just send one out. I mean, I I have the advantage here, Jen, that I, I do my radio show from home. So I already have mm. a broadcast suite like it, it's it's kind of improvised. Basically, like I do my radio show from home and then I take all the stuff away and I put it in the closet. Right. And then the next morning, it only takes me like a minute or two to set up, but it like, it's some sound baffling and some things like that. So I have the advantage of that already. So the the marginal costs of me getting set up like that are pretty modest. Your disadvantage. And it's, it's a cute one is your kids are still in the age where they just want to walk all over you and be interrupting you. Yes. So I, my you, daughter that, did. There's, um, there's nothing to be done about that. They will continue to interrupt videos yeah. and podcast streams. And you're, you know, sorry, audience. It's just what it is. My daughter once, when I was live on the air hosting a, a radio show for CJAD in Montreal, um, my daughter escaped my wife and got downstairs. And I have my microphone live, and I'm I'm speaking with my big radio voice into the microphone, and then I just hear, "Daddy, what are you doing?" And it startled <laughs> me. Because she had snuck up right behind me and her voice was picked up by the microphone, which put it right into my ears. So I was like, ah! and then luckily we had a caller on the air at the time and it sounded like it was on the caller's end. But no, it was yeah. my daughter uh, escaping um, uh, con- containment. Uh, all right, let's. So this is going to be an unusual video, actually, because I am bringing nothing to the table. And that was true a couple of weeks ago. Um when I, I just come back from vacation it's not true today i'm fully caught up in, in the news schedule but basically this week like you were just pumping the notes of it we should talk about this we should talk about this we should talk about this so let me moderate but these are mostly ideas you bring to the table let's start with jennifer gerson versus the baby boomers oh good yes let's definitely start that so um the baby boomers got a little angry at me today this week they they got a little triggered triggered by something i wrote i just did a an angry screed about housing and why the government there was no government that was ever going to fix housing policies we have 
basically an entrenched system um, where nobody is going to allow housing prices to go down because too many people have now bought in and are have too much of their family's net worth hooked up in, in, in housing. And so therefore all of these housing policies are a giant joke because none of them are actually going to reduce the cost of housing. In fact, some of them will do the exact We'll make opposite. it worse. Yeah, they're pumping more money into a market where prices are already being bid up on insufficient inventory. That's right. And like the housing, the housing crisis is a really complicated phenomenon. There's a lot of reasons for it from everything from speculation to, um, uh, you, know, you know, building codes, lack of tradespeople, lack of, of, of materials, like, like uh, immigrants are coming in, there's not enough, like there, there's reason after reason after reason. But I mean, you can't look at our housing policies and fail to note that there is in fact a, a pretty significant intergenerational injustice happening. Yeah. And I think even Christia Freeland said that pretty openly. And that is, you know, the boomers and all the boomers basically got to take advantage of 50, 60 years of, you know, um, a fairly extraordinary increase in economic growth and prosperity in the post-war era with the, you know, the eighties aside, mm -hmm. um, you know, they've enjoyed the last, four decades of, of extraordinary house price value increases, um, way, like wildly beyond either wage um, uh, uh, inflation or, or um, inflationary justifications. Like it, it, this is, we're in a speculative bubble that's way beyond what could be justified by any other kind of um, uh, underlying economic metric. And that this is happening at the expense of younger Canadians. Like, we're the if you're entering the housing market right now, you are paying through the nose for a very very marginal um, uh, type of house, and this is a stark contrast to the realities that a lot of the boomers themselves faced when they were entering the the housing market. So noting that that is just a, oh and, and by the way the baby boomers right now unlike the the stereotype you know of, of the poor retiree are in fact the wealthiest demographic in the country. And oh yeah, and you always have individual baby boomers going, oh yeah, well I'm sure. dirt poor. Yeah, but okay, uh, well, look yeah, at, exactly. look at and, the and charts. I'm, and I, yeah, exactly. And this is this is I think the important thing to know. We're talking about macroeconomic trends. We're talking yeah, about demographics. Failings. This is not about personal failings. Yeah. It's not about your personal triumphs. It's not about your personal anything. An individual baby boomer who is now sitting on six or seven figure net wealth has done nothing wrong. And I think that that needs to be said very clearly. As an individual, you've done nothing wrong to take advantage of this housing market. Of course you have. My parents have, I would have, like, you know, you, you, that's it. But what I think is, it's, it, it, where, what I think is very interesting was how many baby boomers took this column very personally. They thought it was a personal attack on them and their ability to earn and their right to be wealthy and, um, Firstly, it wasn't. I don't think any individual could be suffers any kind of of of, of shame or anything of the sort for have, having had the good fortune of doing well in in a, in a in a in a growing economy. I mean, that's fine, just as long as you recognize that your hardship and struggle and work um, was done in a larger macroeconomic environment that allowed you to take advantage of those things to 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 the utmost expect to the utmost effect. I mean. The phrase "you were born on for, on on third base" kind yeah. of applies here. Now, let's not take this millennials and Gen Z. We were all born on second base. Like nobody's claiming yeah. that. Like like we we like 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 we are struggling by any historic um, a, a generational standard. Like my quality of life and my opportunities are wildly better 
than my grand grandparents were or their grandparents were. I mean, like that that's not in, in dispute. We were definitely born on second base, but we weren't born on third in the same way that 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 that, that our parents were. There's 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 a there's a, a shift in opportunity and a shift in op in openings, and that's just a reality. Um, and it's not like I'm not angry about it. That's just life. But at the same time, I can also say, hey, that's life, and and point to the fact that there are specific government policies that are being put in place to exacerbate that disparity and are going to make it work and are operating for the benefit of one generation at the at the direct expense of, of another. Um, and a lot of boomers got really offended by that. They took that really, really personally. They were like, yeah, but you know, I, I, I lost everything in the 80s. And I'm like, okay, when, when your major hardship, that financial hardship that you need to go back to point to happened 40 years ago, like you've had it pretty good by, by any historic standard. Let's just put that, put that there. Um, and then the other thing I would point out is just, it does seem to me like a lot of people in that particular demographic, and again, I'm generalizing, I don't think this is the case in all cases, but there are a lot of um, boomers who are not accustomed to, um, how should I say this? Uh, taking a lot of flack for this, they're not accustomed to talking about intergenerational uh, inequities, and they are, I think, um, a lot of them put a lot of their own self-worth into their ability to um, ha have been successful mm -hmm. and to have earned a lot of money and to um, have something to pass on to their kids and all the rest. They, they, they find a lot of self-worth in that. So when you go into them and say stuff like, Okay. Well, yeah. Basically, like you lucked out. Like the you, you won. You kind of lucked out. Like, and like, that's not to diminish the fact that you also worked hard and did everything right. But you did worked hard and did everything right in an environment that was extremely lucky for you. In a bigger picture, there are a lot of individual boomers who will take that and be like, "Well, wait. You're saying that I'm not wholly to 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 to, to I'm not wholly responsible for my for the for the benefits I've enjoyed." And that seems to affect some boomers' sense of self worth and sense of identity in a really interesting way. So they you know take what this it is, Jen? personally. Let what? me tell you what this is. Boomer what? privilege. Yeah, that's right. And people yeah. react to, to the concept of boomer privilege in the same way that some people react to the concept of white privilege or... That's right. And, yeah. you know, some... Except some, that boomer privilege is like like really easy to quantify. <laughs> in a well, way I that, mean, that sure, look at the wealth charts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, I, I have always believed in white privilege. I am white privilege. Yeah. And I, yeah. I've always said that, of course, my life has been easier because I'm a, I'm a member of the locally dominant ra racial and, and sort of, or even socioeconomic group. I think we see when we have these arguments, right? You talk about the fact, the undeniable fact that the boomers have benefited from a macroeconomic environment that is no longer operative particularly not That's even right. just for millennials and younger like there actually is an interesting cutoff your husband's a couple years older than you right he's closer to my age yes that's seven yeah he's seven years older than me okay then then he's then he's older than me i'm only about three years older than um than you so and he's enjoyed advantages that i couldn't have dreamed of yes. yeah and our friends who are four years behind us couldn't keep we're up way with more us. fucked than we are like yeah, the, way more the, screwed than we the are. curtain fell really quickly and yeah. I don't, I don't know if it divided the millennial generation evenly. Like we'd have to look at the actual age charts on that. But 
Um, so I'm a millennial. I'm about as old yeah. as a millennial can be uh, by about, so like, like, you, by about you, a year. You'd, you'd put me as an older millennial as well. Yeah, and I'm one of the oldest millennials. I think anyone more than like 11 months older than me is not considered a millennial. So I, I, I barely make it. But my friends, the, the, the people I grew up with who are the same age as me, most of them own homes. Like they, they don't always own the best home or in, in the neighborhood they might want to be. But and this is, again, I'm acknowledging my biases and my privilege. This reflects my the, the neighborhood I grew up in, the, the circles I travel in. But homeownership was possible for, I think, a lot, maybe not most, but a lot of the people who were born in the early 80s. If you're born in the late 80s, you're fucked. Totally different ballgame. Because the, well, and the, also, the I curtain would, I would... had fallen. If you're born in the late 90s, it's like buying a home is like science fiction. Well, and also, I, I would narrow that down even further, and I would say, What's also interesting is you look at even our careers. I mean, I came into journalism and sort of, I graduated high school 2002, came into journalism kind of 2006. So things were definitely getting rocky, like they were on the way out, but there was still a path for me to carve out a career there in a conventional way. I had a series of internships, I had a series of sort of mentorships and like I was able to get... I was able to get jobs in in mainstream newsrooms and things like that. And like, don't get me wrong. It's not like everybody in my age group was doing that, but that pathway was still possible. It was still there. And somebody who's coming out of journalism 15 years later now, no way, no hope. There's just, it's, it's done. It's gone. So it's like, it would be, it would be so disingenuous and so oblivious for me to go to someone who's 22 today and be like, well, I don't get it. Why don't you just get an internship at the globe? Like, what's yeah. your problem? Why can't you get into journalism? Like, like, like that would be ridiculous for me to say that because that world that I came up in has collapsed. It's gone. It's like, it's like, I, I'm like in the, one of those cartoons where, you know, you're running off this, like in DuckTales, you know, when you're running off the side of the building and as you run, the, the little crumbles behind you fall into the abyss. Like I've been extremely lucky and extremely privileged to, to, to have been born at the exact moment that I was and take advantage of the exact moment I, that I did. But I, I, and I and I try to explain that to people who are in their 60s and 70s now, and some of them get it. A lot of them are really smart. A lot of them get it, and some of them just give you this look like, like, like they don't like. Why don't why don't why don't you just save my money? And I'm like, because they can't. Like yeah. this is this is this is this is the this is the, the 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 problem. And and you know the idea that these sorts of generation different gen, macroeconomic realities don't affect generations profoundly I think is really wrong but anyway the point being is that we definitely had a couple of of boomers who took real offense at the fact that I I was I was a bit strident in this column they definitely took it personally in a way that uh uh firstly I they took it personally in a way that I found really interesting and weird because to me it said a lot about um what they valued in themselves as a human being and uh, I don't know a little bit of narcissism there. I I think as well. It's like it's like there's a big dip. Like the, the the boomer generation has 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 um you know is profiting at the expense of the younger generation is not a comment on you personally. For all I yeah. know, I'm presuming that every re- every boomer reader of the line is a wonderful human being who knits you know kitten paws for or- orphan kittens and everything. Like I, like Aww. I'm not assuming anything bad about any individual boomer. This is not a a, a, a you as a boomer are bad because you're a boomer. You took advantage of the, the market you had. Good on you. Get get your money. Like, great. I'm just saying, this is just the economic situation we're in now as a result of some of the policies that we've put in place that have benefited you at the expense of other generations. That's just something that needs to be acknowledged, frankly. Um, See, then the other thing I... 
Sorry, I just want to say, if people are on watching the video right now, might think I'm not paying attention to what you're saying. I am. And if you're listening to the podcast, you won't know this. I've been staring down at my desk. I'm what I'm doing, Jen, is I'm adding up how much money I've made since I became a journalist, and I'm I'm, I'm rounding it oh. off. I'm like what my starting okay. salary was, and then I'm going to knock forty percent off of that for tax, and I'm going to figure out if I could afford a downtown house. If I'd waited a few years, I would have been screwed. Now, I'm about three years older than you, but you and I actually were getting into journalism at almost the exact same time. If anything, you were a bit ahead of me because I did like a a grad school meandering thing. You got a journalism BA and went right into it, right? Well, that's because I mean, and this this where we get to, this is where we get into socioeconomic status classes is that I didn't come from a particularly wealthy family, and you had to just start working. The, 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 I had to start working. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I didn't have money. Like I had my parents helped me out a little bit with tuition, but I worked my way through university, and um, I wanted to work. I wanted to be a journalist, and so when I was a, when I graduated, I had actually been working for two years at the Toronto Star, and I had an internship, a paid internship behind my belt. Um, Again, opportunities that just aren't there anymore. Uh, And I was able to, I was able to pay for my education. Well, a huge part of my my living expenses um, for my education with a union job at the Toronto Star. Yeah. Uh, You know, um, in the radio room, the radio room in particular. So that gave me a great position to sort of get into internships after I graduated. And I just started working right away. But like, there was no fucking gap year. Like, there there was no, oh, maybe you'll go to Columbia. Nobody, my family's gonna pay for my trip to Colombia. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there was not gonna be. I got, I took a vacation in Paris for a week, and that was exciting. But there was not gonna be the grand European tour. You know, it was the fact that I was able to go to Toronto to go pursue a, as my mom would put it, bohemian career in the first place. Was like, all right, I'd much prefer you to like stay at UBC and you know get a degree in poli science. So you can become a secretary, like a like a sensible, like you like know what I mean? Like that person. was like a normal person, like what is wrong with you? Um, and, and you know, you can definitely tell this is, I mean, this is a conversation that you and I've had is like the socioeconomic status, you know, frames your expectations of what you can achieve because the idea of economic insecurity was not something that I was able to bear at that particular point in, in, in my life. And I had to, I had to work. Yeah. So that was it. And I just worked. And I think you're right. There was a moment, like, I think you and I, if we did the math on this, we could go and look at our peers and find the exact year when the when the gate snapped shut on journalism, right? Well, I mean, what I would have to do, I was I would have to text Robin Urbach, who's currently a columnist at the Globe and Mail, I'd ask what year I hired her, and then that would basically mm-hmm. be the cutoff because after that there was no yeah. like that. No we, we didn't really get in anyone after that. So yeah. I've done the math taking every penny I have earned since I became a journalist 14 years ago. And obviously my tax rate has changed with my income level, but I've just done, I've wiped out 40% of that for taxes. Okay. Yep. I could afford 26% of my house. And that's, and I'm, and I'm honestly using a pretty low estimate for the value of my house. So every single dollar I have ever made. And as you know, I did, I, I rose fairly quickly at the post and I ended up breaking into the ranks of senior, senior managers. And then I've jumped to other jobs since, but I've, I've done what people do. They jump from job to job to job and they improve their circumstances. Now I'm a freelancer and I'm doing better than I was before. But it's just, so for people who would make the, why don't you save more money argument? If I had never spent a single penny that I had earned on anything other than housing, if every single penny I have ever earned since I was fresh out of grad school had gone entirely to housing, I could afford 
27% of my house. Which means at, you could barely, most. you could, you could barely afford a typical uninsured down payment. You'd be just over that. It would mean the entire time for, for that entire time, I would have had to have been, in our, you know, I think for that entire time, I, my wife and I have been together, but we weren't like at the early phase of this, we were just dating. Right. So, so if she had been able to put every scrap of food on the table, every article of clothing on my back, my cell phone plan, everything. You would have been, you would have been able to afford a 20%, basically roughly a 20% down payment on the house with us. You would have been able to get the down payment on your current house uninjured. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then when you actually factor in land transfer taxes and things like that, yeah, not really. less than that, well, there's that seven, the 7% would be gone. So, but, and then also so, so. if I assume the, um, I basically, I don't know how much my house is worth because of how insane the real estate market is like my, my best and worst case scenarios are about a half million dollars apart. If I take the high end, I could not have afforded a down payment on the house I live in if I, even if I'd put every single penny I've ever made in journalism into it. Actually, you know what? Not even in journalism, in anything. And I am, yeah. I have been lucky enough to break through and to be on the relatively high end paid of, of this gig in, in my time. I could have, I couldn't afford the house I live in, even if every last. Well, and, and, and that's, and that's, and that's, that's why my husband and I were like, we can't go back to Toronto because that's nuts. Um, we, and we just stayed in, in, in Calgary and Calgary is one of the few cities in, in Canada still where you can, you know, you can get a very decent little house for $500,000. Um, that's quickly changing, but yeah. like you can still, even here it's changing, but, but you can still get a reasonable house for a reasonable fee in, in Calgary. You now that being said, too? so anyway, that I'm going to, I want to circle back because I don't really want to spend this whole time talking about housing, but like the, because the, the, the point I was trying to make is, is, is the boomer hate. I, there's a couple of little things I want to note about this in the dispatch. One of them is we did actually did lose some paid subscribers who were very angry at us. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the point I just want to say is thank you very much for coming and goodbye. Um, because, you know, if, you are coming to the line as a paid subscriber thinking that you are going to never be offended, never be upset by anything we write, never be challenged by anything we write, yeah. then you're not here for the right reasons. You're here because you think that this is somebody that we're a group of people who are just going to rail against the millennial Wokies and, and, and always affirm your beliefs and give you happy feelings in the world. I have no doubt that we would make more money if that were our journalism model, um, but it isn't and we're not. So that's what it is. Well, look, um, that, I mean, and that's it. part of our, and part of our journalism ethic is always about accepting rebuttals. So if you think I'm wrong, write me a rebuttal that isn't, you hurt my feelings. You know, and, though, and, we did lose. We got some snarky emails. We had some immediate cancellation mm -hmm. subscriptions, but I did check our numbers this morning. We had a lot of activity yesterday, but we are net positive for new subscribers. So we did lose a bunch. Welcome. But a bunch You're of new welcome. people signed on, and we can track this. They signed on entirely because of your column. So, okay. And thank yeah, you. And so, welcome. it was a net winner. Um, the only thing I, was, I say is, I, I think it's two things. I've already mentioned boomer privilege as, as it goes with white privilege, right? People, people have a hard time extrapolating, their, separating their personal experiences from their demographic or macroeconomic circumstances, right? I think you've already said that. <laughs> yeah. People have that self image. The other thing that I think comes up, and I don't know if this is a human thing or a Canadian thing in particular, the wealthy are uncomfortable with being wealthy. Like you've got to be, you have to be either very wealthy or a particular personality to be comfortable being wealthy. And I think, I think some people, particularly boomers, 
Well, it's it's been said of our politics, right? I'm trying to remember who said this. Was it Stephen Gordon, uh, the uh, economist at Laval, who used to work with us at the Post? I think he pointed out everyone thinks they're middle class. Yeah. Like you, you've got the desperately poor, you've got the fantastically rich, and those are a couple of percentage points at either end of the spectrum. And then you've got like 97% of humanity, 98% of humanity maybe, who thinks they're middle class. And, and also, and I think part of the reason why the column bothered a couple, and not all, but a couple of the boomers is that honestly, I think it's a guilty conscience. Part yeah. of the defensiveness just reeks of, I, I, I just, I, I've earned my wealth, God damn it, I'm not going to be told otherwise. I'm not going to be told that I, that, that I, I do not deserve the money that I've been given, that I've been, um, that I've been given. I did all the right things. If you didn't do the right things, you, you, you're a moral failure in a way that I'm not, I deserve this. And it's because there's a, there's a, there's an unacknowledged guilty conscience there because you have to know, you have to know that even if you did work your ass off and you did all the right things, the fact that you had the opportunity to work your ass off, the fact that you had the opportunity to put your money in Apple at the right moment and the Apple happened to do really well, these were things that were ultimately beyond your control and the result of macroeconomic factors that, that, that benefited you and that you did nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. You succeeded, go you, go capitalism, rah, rah, rah. But let's acknowledge that luck played a huge factor there. And, and I think people are really uncomfortable with that. We've already been talking too long. We, we've been gabbing. Oh my gosh, we are so gabby. We are gabby. This, um, we're talking about legacy media though. Let's just quickly mention the new Toronto Star CEO and her tweets. The executives are not the journalists. And everyone always assumed Godfrey was telling us directly what to dictate. Look, the publisher or the CEO would occasionally... Care. They don't care. Occasionally. Occasionally. We need this occasionally covered. They would, or, they would come down, or they would say, occasionally they would come down and be like, for a major election... We're There's going an endorsement. To this person and that's the going company to be, is picked, and with the editorial which, board which, guys, which has like always me, been a tradition okay. in in newspaper. This is a, every time that there's like some kind of endo, like unsigned editorial endorsement, people are, are scandalized without realizing this is like a tradition that goes back to the beginning of newspapers. The the firewall between executive ownership and editorial newsroom, we could talk about it in highfalutin terms of integrity and journalism. It's actually much more uh, cynical than that. It's benign neglect. They let us continue to do what we do, and they go try and sell the advertisements. As, as far as the executive is concerned, the newsroom is the thing that absorbs money and doesn't make money. That, that's it. We're, we're the unfortunate appendage. We're like, we are literally the meat section of the grocery store. You can't not have us there because then nobody comes into the store, yeah. but we only cost money. Mm-hmm. that's that's what we are to the to the ceo so anyway, the reason why we bring up all of this information is Bad because tweets. there's a new ceo of the, of the toronto star her name apparently is marina glogovac i don't know anything about her although i'm going to start poking around so when it was announced that she was going to be named the new ceo of the toronto star of course people start digging around and they find quote unquote bad tweets such as this one which i'm going to quote now to david fisman uh, this was uh, March 11th, 2022. So like a month ago, the rest of the world is move on and all other provinces. We are actually the last one to follow. So the frame of references and hundreds of other experts all throughout Europe and the US, both blue and red states support this. The pandemic is over. Time to heal and unite. 
So firstly, all of these tweets, by the way, that have been flagged as bad tweets are maybe like bad tweets in the context of a very liberal, very downtown COVID hysteric crowd. But like I'm reading this and nothing here offends me. She, she has an opinion, like who cares? But anyway, so David Fisman, of course, retweets this and says, new CEO of the Toronto Star, thoughts? With, and then her response to this was, David, respectfully, don't want to feel persecuted by you for a personal opinion from a month ago as a free and private citizen. It has nothing to do with my new role. I'm fully vaccinated and support the current public health guidance. Should be able to dialogue in a democracy. Marina here is 100% correct. I mean, personally, like, as a private citizen, you are allowed to have opinions that differ from the opinions of David Fisman, also known as the guy who called uh, the conservatives literal Nazis because he was counting the number of characters in their official um, Twitter accounts tweets and found out that a couple of them happened to come out to the number 88. Um, and I would certainly question whether or not David Fisman's personal stamp of approval is necessary or required for a private citizen, for the acceptability of a private citizen's opinions. Is that the gentlest way that I can put that? I think, I mean, literally the gentlest way of putting it is that you don't think he gets a veto of what, over what other people think. And I don't I think th that he gets a veto over what's considered acceptable. Yeah. Period. I, There's well, nothing, Marina, Marina, Marina's statements and tweets, like I said, might not go over particularly well in a very, very progressive, uber liberal kind of downtown Toronto space. That does not disqualify her from being the CEO of Torstar at all. Uh, yeah, um, I, I, I continue to value some of, uh, a lot of what, what Fisman tweets, right? Because he actually continues to post really interesting information about airflow mechanics and um, UV sterilization of, of air. I, I've, I've found him a valuable resource, but I think what we have seen over this pandemic is a, um, an, I find this really interesting. We have seen some of what we, you and I have kind of collectively referred to them as the Twitter doctors. And we don't even, we don't even necessarily mean that derogatively. Like there are people who have medical expertise who have become prominent commentators throughout the pandemic. Some of them are now declaring outright their partisan affiliations. They're running for political office. They're securing nominations. Remember, Ontario has a provincial election coming up in, in uh, two months. So we're in the nominations phase. I haven't been surprised yet to see what someone's political affiliation has been, right? And yeah. um, I, I don't know what Fisman's political affiliations are. I know he's tweeted about politics. I don't follow that closely. It's just, it struck me as twofold. There's the, there's the very basic issue you're raising, which is that comments made by a private citizen or comments made by a private citizen. I also think it's just really, when I saw the people trying to Hey, look what the CEO of the star is saying. How are the star people going to find out about this? People who say this are just not appreciating how much the executives ignore the journalists in any large no, but, but journalism what about the, company. What about the beyond that, is someone in her position, is, the, is if the, if the tour, tour, tour star CEO said, hey, I think that it's time for us to move on from, from the pandemic, is that really such an egregious, terrible, unacceptable position that we need to like, what, get her pushed out of the job as tour star CEO? Like, and like, there's a couple other tweets and stuff like that. I mean, I think there's one 
that was kind of a little nutty about about vaccines and things like that. But um, like she, she's not an anti-vaxxer by any stretch. But I mean, what what would be a disqualifying opinion for the for a tour star CEO? I think is an interesting question. It is an interesting. Actually, question. now now that now now that I think about it, that is an interesting question. I don't think anything she's posted comes would be close that meeting the standard for qualifying. I mean, if she were out there spewing hate speech against an identifiable yeah, group, the, the I think usual... I think that would that would be not that would be a disqualifying opinion for someone in a in a high public in a high public company like that. But I mean, not even specifically. I, think, I do think star, there right? would be no, not even specifically. Well, let me star. ask you the question. I do, think, a I do way. think there is a line, but like I don't think she's met it. Let me ask you the question a different way. There's a CEO of a journalism company under any obligations beyond what the CEO of any large company would be under. Like, is there something that would be acceptable if you were running a hedge fund or an auto parts maker or an artisanal bakery chain or something like that? That would be totally fine, but ooh, that's not the sort of thing that would be acceptable in journalism. Unless it was something actually like the, the, the journalists are enemies of the people. Yeah, no, the, but that's, that's what I was about to say. I would be like, I wouldn't want the CEO of a journalist company to have profoundly liberal views about journalism. Journalism itself. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think I think that if you're going to be the CEO of a journalism focused company, you should have some some pretty strident views about the value of journalism. Seems fair. I, I, I would expect that. Um, but like, if okay, so here's here's would be an interesting career. Let's let, what if Marina were a strident anti-vaxxer? Sincerely thought the vaccines were. But like, she was an incredible CEO who would effectively manage Torstar and keep a hundred yeah. journalists employed. Yeah. What? What then? Right. Like that. I mean, that's there's the right answer, and then there's the real answer. I, I would say the right answer is that it doesn't matter, so long as you are acting appropriately within within your job and you're doing. Yeah. So long as she's not trying to like, as long as she's not trying to push like anti-vaxxer stuff under the editorial, yeah. which was as we've established. A CEO wouldn't, that wouldn't be normal for a CEO to do. No, and there would be, so there that, would be chains of command and lines of defense. They're not, you know, I'm not, a, um, I'm not an idealist about this. I think a lot of the traditional editorial firewalls have been broken down um, sure. as the media companies have contracted and become more vulnerable. You're definitely more vulnerable as a media company today to special interests because your revenue streams are so narrow. So I'm not naive yeah. about this. Um, but overall, there would be a massive editorial resistance to that kind of a, uh, an order. And we, you and I both know the star's editor in chief. Emma would quit. She okay. would just no. she would just quit. Like it wouldn't no it wouldn't There's happen. No, um, no it wouldn't happen. But I think um, yeah, it's interesting. Like I, I think in terms of what would disqualify a CEO of a journalism company, the, the, you, you, even you if she CEO... was totally raging anti-vaxing. I don't know. You, you I mean, some of the journalists might be comfortable, uncomfortable working to that kind of a person. But but here here's what I would I would I would argue is that a CEO has a public facing role, and that a CEO's opinion should not be batshit. Well, it shouldn't reflect in a derogatory way on the company as a whole. Yeah. So like, I think that if I think that if she were like full on trucker convoy anti masker. Um, for a company like Torstar, which has traditionally aligned itself with more leftist and progressive values, that would potentially be a conflict that, that would be difficult to overcome from an optics perspective. I would agree with that. I don't think it would, would, I don't think that her presence would be a threat to the editorial side at all, but I do think it would potentially, potentially present an optics issue. The issue that I have is like the stuff that's being flagged as like problematic tweets 
is just not that. It's just, it's, I mean, I mean, unless I'm missing something and forgive me if I am, like, I, I do think there was. Uh, she something. is, she has sanitized her Twitter account, I believe. Um, so by the time I was yeah. looking at it, there wasn't much of note objectionable I do think or otherwise she, I, I do I, I do think she said something a little bit about a, a, a little bit skeptical about Pfizer so like there there was a little bit of that but I don't think she was a full-on raging anything really so here we go I'm just gonna go here I mean I, to me I think uh, it does not matter what he thinks it matters what Pfizer executive thinks and want we're witnessing a policy at government capture by a massive corrupt drone corporation dig deeper folks so there's a couple sort of slightly that's not great but it's not great but I mean uh I live the first 26 years of my life and like you presume I think she's coming from a communist country here we are. Oh, here we have a curious and powerful emergence of quote unquote mass formation of psychological phenomenon that enabled, enabled all totalitarian regimes, us versus them, passports, membership, segregation, those with with resources wins. Okay, so mass formation is a, is a particular sort of, I hate to use the word dog whistle, but it's a particular um, statement that goes back to some stuff that was um, passed around in Joe Rogan um, that assumed that a lot of the behavioral stuff that we're seeing around COVID, I mean, I noting a lot of people seem to have gone a little nutty um it's something called mass formation psychosis so it's a kind of like a wonky theory um that doesn't really have evidence but it it it, it does allude to the kind of um collective stuff that we do tend to see in in totalitarian regimes and i don't think that's particularly controversial she's she's making a particular note here which does suggest that she's sort of stridently anti-communist yeah. understand if she comes from a, if she comes from a communist country is understandable she's probably a little bit more on the libertarian side um she's skeptical of authority would be sort of how i read this it's like i don't think that a tweet like this or like these are disqualifying for her as a role as a ceo remotely i don't think that but it does show that she is outside the norm of what i would expect to see in like i said fairly lefty downtown toronto circles yeah certainly. what do we actually want to write in the dispatch i i will write something boomers. about boomer hate boomers boomer who hate me now also you know what for what it's worth a lot of boomers agreed with you by the way a lot of boomers were lovely like they're and in our comments too we had some really lovely like genuinely like oh like nice boomers who like really get it who really 100 get it and are genuinely worried about their kids are genuinely worried about where this goes as a society like man i am not putting every boomer in the same bucket here but that's yeah. that's that's another conversation um anyway i'll do boomer hate do you want to take on fisman versus the star ceo because i think that there i think that like the more we started i thought it was just a funny throwaway tweet but the more we started talking about it the more i'm just like there's actually some interesting ideas to unpack here yep yeah, no i can i can do that um Anything, anything on the broader COVID front or Ukraine front worth mentioning? Oh, yeah, I don't care about COVID anymore. And um, I'm I love say, that the Ukrainians uh, zapped that ship, uh, or apparently zapped Oh, it was funny. Ship. Yeah. Um, the, the, apparently, according to the Kiev Independent, uh, Trudeau made some comments sort of acknowledging that uh, Ukraine is in a state of genocide. Oh, they, no, that Russia's... Yeah, I mean, look, yeah, he did. Uh, President Biden and Justin Trudeau both had said this week that Russia is committing genocide in Ukraine, to which I would refer them back to our dispatch of last week and go, no, they're not. Well, and not that, but I mean, like, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a quintessentially Trudeau-y thing to do to be like, great, we'll acknowledge that you're going through a genocide and do nothing about it. So now instead, so it's not really a genocide, but 
but we'll give you that sop so that now we can continue to not put on a no-fly zone instead of in front of an act of genocide instead of a mere war atrocities you know what I mean like it's here's your consolation prize I think it's what I said to you last week if unless you condemn or praise something in the most maximalist possible terms you're a fence sitter so if, if something's bad, you got to use the worst possible terminology to describe it. If something's good, you have to lot it. It's, I, I've said this before to you. I don't know if I've ever said it uh, publicly like this, but one of the most threatened rights right now in terms of our, our cultural moment is the right to not have a strong opinion on something. It's the right to either have zero opinion on something or to be kind of lukewarm on it and be like, yeah, I can see what you're saying, but I'm not that passionate about it. We live in a cultural moment where everybody needs to be on the right side of something. And obviously they, they, they will decide for themselves which side is the right side, but just not caring is really hard right now. And I'm not saying I don't care about Ukraine. I'm just saying all of our instincts right now are honed to whatever position I'm going to take, I'm going to take it all the way. So if the Russian invasion of Ukraine is bad, it's genocide. Hmm. No, it's just bad. It's it's really bad. It is horrific. Like Ukraine's found another mass grave this week, but by the definitions of genocide we're using here, every war in history has been genocidal. And if every war in history has been genocidal, genocide has no meaning. Like yeah, it's just we, war. Then. Well, then it's just like war. we said last week, words mean things. They have meanings. They have specific meetings and we come up and with we're going to be the bad bad pedantic assholes that are going to make that point so i think you should take that one yeah okay i'll i'll repeat and it doesn't so it doesn't do need that. to be a big stance because we've, we've already kind of addressed the, the the core piece of it yep. but i just like i just think it's it's just interesting to point out how absolute of course of course he acknowledged it was genocide, you know what i mean yep. like and what are we gonna do course. about it eh. No, nothing yeah exactly there's a there never again will we allow genocide except for this genocide which we're going to acknowledge we're, as a genocide yeah. and then do nothing about okay um the, the only other thing i would mention and we'll, we'll say this in in signing off is uh happy easter happy passover happy ramadan oh. for those who are continuing to celebrate and to the non-religious among you have a great long weekend that's all i got all right excellent i mean i'm still bitter about the snow but that's fine uh, also happy easter to everybody and all the all the holidays all the holidays <laughs> Okay, All thanks everybody. Uh, we will be off, I think, Monday we're taking off? Yeah, we're going to take off Monday, and then we'll be back right. probably Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday to another, sh- another right. short week next week. Yep, works for me. Okay, thanks everybody. Take care. Well, that's it for episode two of the Experimental Line podcast. As we said, it's too long. We know. We'll try to get better at that. As we also said, it is a long weekend, and we hope all of you who are celebrating either Ramadan or Passover or Easter Have a wonderful holiday. Even if you're not, hey, a long weekend is a long weekend. So enjoy it. We're taking Monday off. We'll be back with you on Tuesday. Take care of yourselves, folks. Matt Gurney here, signing off.